Yeah. Yeah. Decent thing for me to do that's all the nice things is for yourself to die, probably. Well, I didn't prepare anything exactly. I got some old notes here. I feel well, what the hell you concerning? If I get killed on the way up there, look at the time I wasted. But I don't think that those of us in AA ever have to prepare anything. We've been there. We've been on both sides of the road. And at times like this, that I have wished God had put a window in my heart. So that you see how grateful and happy I am to be there at your fourth anniversary. To me, it's a great tribute to any one person that is asked to talk at an anniversary meeting. I think there is something special in each of our lives. Because I'm sure to those of you that have come through this group from the start and have had the tough times and the good times along the way, have known what a tough struggle it is. And at times you felt like giving up, no doubt about it. But if I can remember back a little bit that I was just glancing out in chapter two of the big book, there is a solution for you and I. Any time that we ever think that there isn't, we better go back and pick up the big book. Because we will find the answer there if we look for it. It's entirely up to you and me to get out of this thing just what we want. If you're new here, believe me, we'd like to welcome you to the finest way of life on this earth. Because you can accept or reject. It's entirely up to you. If you like what we got, and you want it, it's free for free. There's no charge. There's no price tag on this thing. It can't be bought. And most of the people that's in it can't be bought. Now, when we were drinking and sitting on the bar stool alongside of some of you same people, we could be bought then. We sell our souls for a drink of whiskey. Oh, many times. We've all done it. Maybe you haven't. In your way of thinking. But I think if we take a soul searching inventory, we will find that we have. Because I think that there's some place in the Bible that says man will destroy himself. What is the alcoholic doing when he's drinking? but destroying himself, the full torture. I know of these rarely torture chambers and everything that they have, but I don't think there's any more torture than the torture that the alcoholic goes through. I don't think there's anything worse than the hangover, the sickness that the alcoholic has. And believe me, it is a sickness. It's a very, very many emotions to it. The alcoholic's emotions are like a mixed up ball of steel wall. When we're sober and throw a little whiskey into us and brother, we really get off. We really get mixed up. We'll get mad, we'll get crying, we'll be trying to make love at the same time. You talk about mixed up emotions. Brother, we got off. Believe me on that. But what does AA do? AA helps us to channel our emotions so that we can gradually accept this way of life. I'm not going too deeply into my life because I don't think that's important. I used to, I, when I go to prison and I talk to my, my buddies, that's a little bit different. But I think that the important thing here is to give you a very quick summary of my life. I drank ever since I was able to carry a beer tail. I was probably drunk the first time at the age of 14, 15, 16, along in there. And being small for my age, I found a way out. And believe me, it was a way out. I thought. But I progressed. With alcohol, I became gradually became a mission. I became a professional fighter. I boxed for a lot of years, and along with the boxing, I became a professional booze fighter too. 
And I found out there was one thing that I couldn't make this old man bother for me. Because drinking cost me better than 10 years of my life in prisons and jails. Oh, and I spent a few years in Skid Row. And for things that I done while under the influence of alcohol, because I was sick, I was put in prison. I'm not rationalizing nothing, and I'm not making excuses. Because right today, I think that if a guy come along, I had a chance to kid him for $152,000, and I thought I could get away with it, I think I might try it. And I tried it. But I didn't get away with it. I eventually did myself up, and I wound up doing five, ten years in Jackson, and I'd done most of the five. Because while I was there, I learned that the easiest way to do that time was to stay drunk, because I didn't know if I was in jail or where the hell I was. <laughs> and I got out, and pretty soon I was in jail again, and pretty soon I was back in Jackson again. It isn't important, I don't think, the amount of time that we spent any place. The important fact is that I share with you a little bit of what happened to me, so that I may light a candle. So that you too won't fall in some of the falls that I've fallen. And right about here, I'd like to thank and be grateful to all the people that have had trouble with this program and is back there today. They had the courage to walk up them steps into this room. And believe me, from the things that I understand of some of these people, it takes courage. Because it's you that have lit that candle and showed me the pitfalls. It was you that told me that AA, once you become associated with it, it spoils your system. And I know that because I've listened to you fellows and gals tell me of the troubles. I've watched you. And I don't want to go through the same thing if I don't have it. And I don't have it unless I want it. Because in chapter two, it tells us Many things about the way out for us. We cannot help ourselves. After you came to this program and had a period of sobriety and all of a sudden this obsession of mind starts going. A nice warm day today, you go down the street and you see this these signs flashing on and off beer, wine, whiskey, so on and so forth. I haven't had a drink for about three months. Now, I think a couple of good cold ones wouldn't hurt me at all. I'm sure that I could handle them. Yeah, yeah, you deserve them. You earn them. You deserve them three months. After the alcoholic takes the first one, he or she don't drink them because they want to. They drink them because they have to. The obsession of the mind is how they're taking the drink. And once they take the drink, the mind says to the body, Okay, you take over. I got them started. And again, we're compulsive drinkers. I know about the compulsion of drink. I was that type of drinker. Maybe I wouldn't drink for six months. Your head's been tiny. It's been rare. And all of a sudden, three o'clock in the morning, I'd get up. And in the dark, I'd try to get my clothes on. And my wife would put the light on. I didn't know if she heard me. She said, what the hell are you getting dressed for? And I say, I got a deal. I got to go meet a guy. I got a big deal on it. You know what the big deal was? I had to go get a bottle. Oh, I know about that compulsion. I even had it after I come to AA. So along with all these trials and tribulations that we have with life, and this alcoholic problem. We can do two things. We can trudge the road with our problem. We, I mean we, me and my problem, and the bottle, down through the pitfalls, the horn and hell, or we can trudge the happy road with AA and God. It's entirely up to us. I like this way of living. You give it to me. And you didn't ask me 
how much money I had to join this organization. And when you people called on me, you didn't ask me what side of the tracks I come from. You didn't ask me the color of my skin. You didn't ask me my religion. And the greatest thing of all was you didn't say that you had to be from a certain standard of class in order to belong. You said if you're an alcoholic, you're at home. Welcome. You're one of us. And A has taught me so many things that I'll be eternal grateful to. A has taught me that there's only one race. That's the human race. And in A we do things together. And it has also taught me that there's only one religion here. That's the spiritual way of living. When each of us leaves here, we can go to the choice of a church of our choice. It's entirely up to us. There's so many things that can be said about AA and the people in it. But the only one that I can say anything about is me. I can't say anything about you. I can tell you what happened to me and how grateful I am that some of the things that happened did happen. Because I'm not so sure otherwise. I think that all of us have to go just as far as we go before we're ever going to be anything. I think that we have to just get sick of ourselves before we're finally going to start to want to do something about ourselves. I like to say that if you can just take one thing from this meeting, remember when, remember when, when you made a phone call, when you were supported, you were dragged, you were threatened, I don't care how you came, but remember when you came. Just remember that, if you will. I don't think that any of us will want to go back to where we was when we called AA, or our wife called, or the police called, or the hospital called. We were getting ready for the mortgage call. And I don't think any of us want to go back there. And all i got to do is remember when I used to crawl up out that hole down there by the CKNS track, crawl up out them weeds, and maybe look around down there to see if any of us lost any pennies. And I could get out in the street and try and get the fight. And sometimes I was shaking so bad I couldn't even ask for the fight. But I could walk into one of these dingy bars and ask for a double shot of wine and throw it down and walk out. Or I couldn't go back there again. But I got many eye-opener that way. And I remember that. And I also remember the while a lot of these people in this program told me that the only difference between the drunk in the penthouse and the silken gown and the one down the railroad tracks is altitude. Give them both a fifth of whiskey and they'll reach the same level in one hell of a hurry. Believe me on that. So here we are, and we're together. Why? Because we want to do something about our problems. So if you can just take and remember when you came to AA, and then ask yourself, what was I looking for? And then I think that you're starting on the right path. Because I think that it, as we're handed these tools in AA, and I think for most of us, it looks like a jigsaw. I know they handed me a lot of these little booklets, and they handed me the big book, and they said, here, read it. And I couldn't see it, let alone read it. My wife called AA, called to be my ex-wife at that time. And if you don't think that alcohol is a remover, brother, start looking around. Because I can remember that I at one time I had an automobile. It wasn't too good, but it was an automobile. I had a boat, I had a motor, I had a lot of fishing equipment, I had a double barrel shotgun. Oh, it wasn't all paper, but I had it. <clears throat> and we had furniture in the house and everything else. And then I can remember at the age of 33 when I got too old to work, so I ran away from home. 
And I used to come back to the house and I'd steal the stuff out of the house. I remember one time that after the car was gone, that the trailer was, and boat was sitting in the backyard, and I'm pushing this trailer and boat down the street, and I got $20 for it. Now, I can remember that, and I can remember when I walked down the street with a Davenport on my back. You ever see a guy going down Woodard Avenue with a Davenport on his back? I went down Woodard Avenue, and place else, I had a friend in the gym, you know, he didn't have no Davenport. He needed that Davenport. I didn't have no whiskey. So I got a gallon of whiskey for it. When my wife came home and she seen this wicker furniture in the, in the porch, she says, Look at some of the Davenport in the big chair. Honey, you deserve it. Something better. I'm getting the Davenport recovered for you. You're worth it. She was. She made twelve dollars a week, and I was seeing a little bit off me. She said, "Well, do that nice you to send that out and get it fixed and color for me." I said, "Glad to do it, honey. You're earning it. You're the breadwinner now." So the weeks went by, and I went away, and I come back, and uh, I was down. Making a tour, looking at my copies out the track there. She says to me, What about this? Where did you send this down for this chair to be fixed and covered? I said, Oh, I said that. I said, Well, I'll tell you. I think there might be a little delay in you getting it back. I said, Fact of the matter is, I don't think you can get it back. She says, Why not? She says, uh, Are the people going out of business or something? I said, no, no, they're still in business. I said, but the place that I took it, they don't uh, repair stuff like that. I said, they give you this stuff as a remover, I said. Whiskey. You see, the whiskey was removing the furniture out of my house. It already removed that tire and that boat and motor, and it was gradually removing the furniture. We didn't have no more rugs on the floor. We didn't have a little stool rug to put in front of the, uh, we didn't have a bathtub. We didn't have that to the house. We only had a little stool in there. We didn't have a stool rug for put in front of the bed. Or the blue layer had stool rugs. And then I come in there one day and I, I threw the front door because I got damn tired of coming through the back door and every time I come through there and she meet me and she say, all right, take them off. She then dressed to take my clothes off me. And you that you see him scrub an elephant, have you? Well, that's the way my wife used to scrub me with that brush in cold water. I couldn't understand why. But I could now. She didn't want to get lousy. And believe me, I was lousy when I got in that track. So I said, that's why I come through the front door. And this day when I come through there on the buffet, it was something like this day, hot. And this big fan was going to back and forth. I looked around, I didn't see that thing. I said, where the hell did that fan come from? I don't ever remember hot in a fan. So I grabbed the fan on one hand and the cord on the other, and I had that big and hot before the blade stopped turning. Believe me. I come home and she says, uh, as Bob was there, I'll be some of that fan that was on the buffet. She says, the neighbor's loaned it to her. I said, get my neighbor. She says, yeah, it was awful hot, hot in this apartment. And I said, well, I said, uh, I know what it is. I said, I got $2 for it. Now, if you want to give me the $2, I'll go get it. But you know she didn't. Then I told her about the time that she was hollering about it being hot, and I come home one time and it was cold in there. And I told her about trying to freeze me out because I didn't come home very often. And she told me then that, that the cold man had cut us off. We couldn't get no more coal. And, of course, you know what's alcoholic. And we got to be big shots right away. And I said, I'll be jammed if they can do that to you. I'll see if you get some coal. And so I left. And when I come back, I finally come back. She had a quarter of a ton of coal in the basement. I said, see that? Don't have to worry about it. The old man takes care of everything. He really takes good care of you. You never had it so good. I went down to Salvation Army and begged him for some coal. But I had to put on the axe. She never had it so good. I was looking out for her. Oh, yes, I stole everything out of the house. Everybody looked better than I did. And yet, when they handed me the tools of alcoholics and omelets, and I looked at them, and they read them to me at first, when these two men come to see me, 
I was in a tavern because they'd already said they'd be there the night before and they didn't come. And so I went upstairs and I come back down the next morning and I called them and when I called AA, myself, a lovely lady answered the phone and she says, this is Alcoholic Anonymous. Could we help you? Well, boy, that about that time, she knocked me around the seat of my pants. She goes, ordinary, if anyone said it, could they help me? I said, yeah, buy me a couple of drinks. But that was the first time in many years anyone said, could they help me? And I looked at her, and she started asking me what I, my trouble was. And I said, well, well I, I haven't got no trouble. I said, but my wife called last night. I said, and you people said there'd be someone down here at 7 o'clock. And uh, nobody showed up. She said, well, is uh, your wife an alcoholic? I told you, I don't know. And she said, uh, well, how much does your wife drink? And I said, oh, probably about two beers a year. She said, uh, well, alcohol is no problem to it, isn't it? I said, well, I don't know. She said, well, who wants to quit drinking? I said, well, I, I said, I guess she wants me to quit drinking. I mentioned that I would. And she says, uh, well, do you want to quit drinking? And I said, well, I don't know. She said, well, are you an alcoholic? I said, I don't know. I didn't know what the hell an alcoholic was. I didn't know it was some kind of a disease or a contagious or what the hell it was. I didn't know. She said, well, do you drink a whole lot? And I said, oh, I said, uh, oh, I don't think too much. She said, well, does drinking cause you any trouble? Do you get any trouble? I said, oh, it's nothing too serious. It didn't happen. I'm Robbie. I'm I'm Robbie. Cut a man. Kill a man with a knife. Nothing serious. Uh, well, you want to quit drinking then? And I said, well, I said, I guess so. She said, well, uh, there'll be a couple of men down the sea tonight then. Now, I thought that this AKA was for businessmen. And that uh, if you, you went with these good people and they taught you how to drink and they got in a room behind closed doors and they drank. And if you got in trouble, they helped you out. Well, I was going to keep them guys busy. So they said, they'd be down at 7 o'clock that night. And I said, by the way, what the hell is the matter with right now? You know, 25, 30 years, all of a sudden I want to drink, and I want it now, now, like all the other alcoholics. She said, oh, they're all working now. They can't get away to come and see me. She says, well, there'll be somebody down. I says, uh, okay. She says, are you drinking now? And I said, oh, not too much. She said, well, don't drink anymore. I said, no, I won't drink anymore. After I hung the phone up, I said, hell no, I'll drink just as much though. Well, come 7 o'clock, and I was over to the tavern, and I had 12 to go, and I had some whiskey home. So I come back after my kid come over to get me, and I put my hand in his, and he led me home. And I uh, walked in, and I stuck these 12 beers down at the sound table and I opened the icebox door and I said to Larry and Jimmy, I said, be right with you, fellas, just as soon as I take care of my beer. And uh, so I piled nine in the icebox and I left three sitting on the table. I said, you fellas care for a bottle of beer in there? No, oh, we're not drinking today. The hell with them, that much more for me. So I stuck two back in the icebox. I said, you don't care if I have one, do you? Larry is a very sharp old cookie. He said, no, go ahead. If you accept this program, it'll be your last. Last. I brought that baby off right quick. So I went in there, and I sit there, and I told him about all the automobile wrecks I'd been in, and the running gun fights I'd been in, and, well, I'd never started in my life. I'd had that a lot of times. But they, I figured they was lying to me, some of the things they told me. And, you know, in the alcoholics book, the first liar don't ever have a chance. So when they got all through, they left. I don't remember too much what they said that night. But that's why I always will never fail to make the call, the first call on the alcoholic. For the simple reason that he or she may never remember one thing that you said. But they'll remember you were there. You were there. 
And finally they found somebody that cared. Finally they found somebody that wanted them. And accepted And that was the way in my case. Because when I come downstairs the next day to go to the icebox, and I open the icebox morning, this icebox door on this morning, I just visualize Larry and Jimmy sitting in the front room. And I think on the morning of October 31st, 1945, I had my spiritual awakening in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because right then and there, the thought come to me, what Larry said, when he left the house. That if I was sincere for the first time in my life, he didn't say about being honest, he didn't say about, well, I was honest. I would pray instead of going to the icebox the next morning. I shut the icebox, and I went to the bedroom, and I prayed. I think my prayer went something like this. I'm not sure, and I don't know if I kneeled, stood, lay down, crawled, walked the house, but I think that I kneeled with hope, and I think that I stood up with faith, and I think that I've lived with knowledge that I'm getting spiritual help one day at a time like they told me in this program. To do it the easy way, our way, which is God's way. I've learned that there's three ways of doing everything. Your way, my way, and the right way. And the right way is usually God's way. When you pray, you usually get three answers back. Yes, no, and wait. And wait for the alcoholic Brother, we don't want to wait for nothing. But we find through this program that we get what we need, not necessarily what we want. We give what is God as good for us. God permits us to do many things, but he doesn't always approve of us. So I think on that morning of October the 31st, that the prayer that I said, no matter how simple it was, I think that I realized right then and there that I was a child of God. I don't know. Because if we'll remember, when we have those of us that have raised children, then when we're trying to teach our kids something, if he wants something, we teach him to say please. After we give it to him, we teach him to say thank you. And I think that's just the way with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That if you want something, you say, please to God. And you pray in the morning for it. And you do nothing but say three words. God help me. And after you have this day of sobriety, a minute at a time, you say thank you. I used to, when I first came to this program, look at that first step. And I had a son of a gun in time with it. I would admit that I was powerless over alcohol. And then I'd screw my hazy eyes. And believe me, your eyes are hazy and you know it. I would look at it and see there where it said that my wife had become unmanageable. You know she was unmanageable. Because she divorced me when I was in Jackson Creek. Look at all the things she'd done. But after the fog, that started to lift a little bit. And I think the best way that you can explain it is that there's many ways, and I think that a real nice way, that one thing that my a friend of mine mentioned one time about looking at the light, that he mentioned about how blurry the eyes. Well, I, I use it in the same way with, with the alcoholic mind. That if we look at a light, that light right there, for a few minutes, and then look out at the people, very basic. Well, that's the way the alcoholic mind is when he first comes to his program. And it takes a long time. We have to look around and see a lot of things before our mind starts open a little bit and we realize that our life is unmanageable. And I was doing that. And then I got to thinking about Jackson's prison. I got to thinking about all the years that these jails through the country and these county jails and these city jails and the police department and these policemen and everybody else managed my life. 
And I remember then when I went in Jackson prison, they told me how much time to do. And I remember that they even put me in a cell. Then I remember that they blow the bugle real loud in the morning. And they told me to get out behind the guy next to me. And I think that they told me to follow the guy ahead of me and then I wouldn't get lost on the way to the dining room. So I done that. And then they had a man behind me so in case I started to drag a little bit he would step on my heels and I would keep catching up. And then when I walked in the dining room they gave me a, a, a pile of trays that I think that tray up. And I walked over and they put the food on it. Because they knew that I, did, I didn't know nothing about the rules there. And so they put the food on it. To make sure that I wouldn't starve to death, that I would get too much. And then on the way out, they told me about I could pile my dishes up. I didn't even have to wash them. And then I marched back to that cell, and then they told me when I could go to work. Once a week, they turned the laundry right in there on the bed. I didn't even have to go after it. They delivered it. At one sheet a week. At one pillowcase a week. And if I was lucky and had two pairs of state stocks in our first one, I'd get two clean pairs, three clean pairs, however many I had. And you get that one towel. Then they told you when to take a bath. Then they told you when you could go get a haircut. And it wasn't soon that I learned for two facts you could get a pretty good haircut. You didn't get one in a state haircut, but it had shelter. I learned some things. And then I got to look at the ass and I finally got these radios in there. They didn't have them at first, and you could, couldn't even make no mistakes there. You didn't have no dials to turn, you couldn't get mixed up on the station, they got red, white, and blue. Columbia Broadcasting Station, NBC, and, and Newsville. And so, it was all fine. They made the decision. They selected the station for me, I just pushed the plug. And if I didn't like one, I pushed it in another one. And then at, at night, they'd even turn the lights off for me. I didn't even have to turn the lights off. And then they shut the radio off of me at night. And then they had a man walk him down in front of that cell of food nobody could in. Boom. I began to realize how the hell unmanageable my life was. They really managed it. I had no decisions to make. And I was up about second march and I seen the new cell block that they got up there. They really got to even tailor made now up there for them guys. Them guys, well, when I get ready to retire, I'm going up to my camp. You don't even have no problems with water up there. There's no panels on, on in the shower. You can't get too much cold water, too much hot water. You don't have to worry about that. You just push your butt. And the water comes out for a couple of minutes and you get all soaked and wet. Then you soak up. Then when you want to rinse up, you press the button again. And the water comes out all mixed. You don't have to worry about no decision. Then I wonder why a guy can't get manage his life when he gets out of one and join. They even said, how the hell I missed the water? So I looked at that and I remembered how unmanageable my life certainly must have been. And I realized then that it was all through alcohol. And I, I was told by my sponsors and other people in this program that if I wanted to follow the principles of alcoholic anonymous and take these steps as they are, that I wouldn't have no trouble. And I went to my first meeting. I'll never forget it because I, I like to impress upon you how important it is to attend meetings. The first meeting I went to was in a home. And in this house I walked in, a, in the bay window in that house was bigger than that door. And it was wider. And I looked at, at this fellow that was there. And he's in that. And a guy that is dead now. And a wonderful AA. Or a mercy on his soul. And I looked at him and I said to my sponsor, I said, what in the hell is he doing here? He said, uh, Henry? I said, yeah. He said, Henry lives here. He owns his house. I said, lives here? Owns his house? I looked around, big stone fireplace in there, tried to then, hey, well, he's robbed, he gets money to buy this house. I said, that's the only way he could get it. Then I found out that he's been sober four and a half years. Four and a half years. These guys were sober for two weeks a month. Hell, that didn't trust me. Because I've been that sober that long myself. But here was Henry sober four and a half years. I wanted to be like Henry. Because the last time I knew Henry before I went to Jackson prison, he was getting evicted from a little four-room apartment with five kids in it. 
I'd went out there with him, and we were throwing this beer in the icebox, and his wife found him and I in the beer out. And so we went upstairs with a little blonde in there. Yes, I remember that, and I wanted to be like that. And then he told me then, he said, if you have trouble, he said, and things get going rough, he says, you call me. He said, but you called me before, Sai, not after. My sponsor used to tell me to call him. And I called my sponsor. And it got to the point where he finally one day, always at six o'clock, I got home with his five myself, and I always about six o'clock. Finally one day later, he said, I knew damn right you had it. You are just getting ready to sit down in the state. He, he told me if I had a problem, he would call you. I said, I got problems. He said, hey, I've never seen a guy with so many problems. So I said, okay. So he had to meet at, at night, too. So I would get a compulsion to drink. Three, four o'clock in the morning, I would pick up the telephone and call Henry's and Nathan. And Henry said, you know what time it is? I said, certainly, I'm sober. Three o'clock in the morning. He said, when the hell are you calling me at 4 o'clock in the morning, sir? I said, you remember what you told me, Henry? So anytime I wanted to drink a car, maybe it would help you, man, or get me. Well, I'm giving you a chance to help yourself right now. I said, well, I got a compulsion to drink. I want to go drink. And he said, you want me to come over, sir? And I said, no, Henry. Just talk to me. And he would talk to me. And for five years in this program, I had a compulsion to drink. And I know what it is. I know what that driving compulsion is. I see others with it. Many of them. Some recognize it, some didn't. But the compulsion to drink is terrible. It's terrific. But there is an answer. And I think that one of them is the man or woman can reach their greatest height while upon their knees. I think another one is to call another AA before you take a drink, not after. It's just like an alcoholic coming out of prison. The time to get a hold of a sponsor is before. Because before you can go see the poor man. Because he ain't no good that fool man or anybody else after he's got eight, ten strikes of whiskey in his belt. Believe me on that. So when they hear you say, before, not after. It's a little bit late then. So I feel sure that people that attend meetings within themselves, whether they realize it or not, are doing a great deal of 12 steps work. I, for one, will never forget my sponsor. I will never forget the man that listened to me on the other end of the telephone at four o'clock in the morning. Many times, so he said, and been dead a year this month. I will never forget him. I know a lot of times a lot of us have a lot of good days to say, I've got it here. But I think that the strongest tool in the intimacy of alcoholic anonymous is gratitude to our fellow man. Just being grateful to walk down the street sober and to reach out a hand of friendship. You say, welcome, brother. You're one of us. If I can help you in any way, don't hesitate to call me. But neither when you say it. Oh, I know that there's a we procrastinate a lot of times. I know that. I have been guilty of it. I know that when I have taken the inventory of Shy Walker many, many times. And I know what they mean. And I know a lot of other people that have taken my inventory many, many times. Some of them are staying sober. I have a friend, close friend. He's been around this program better than 20 years. He's taken my inventory up and down. At times he stays sober, at times he gets drunk. But I owe a deep debt of gratitude to that man. 
Because that man has showed me and told me many times what not to do. He is an example. If he can never be used for nothing else, he can always be used for the horrible example. I think that all of us within ourselves there's something special with us. And I think that for so many years we've been so busy trying to be somebody else that we never took time to be ourselves. And now that we have and we look in the mirror we realize that we've got better within us than the people that we tried to be. And they always told me that. You people told me to just be myself. And that's all I try to be. I'm nothing fancy. I don't want to be anything fancy. I don't know nothing about any big words. All I try to use them, I had a head checker that lived with me for three and a half years. Harry remembers them. He was trying to get me to say all these words. He even was teaching me to say uh, anonymous. I, I don't know if I said it right yet or not. And he was saying, now say Annie Mouse. Annie Mouse. And he started teaching me these different words. And so a couple of times I left him, another friend of mine who was an alcoholic, Dr. Burl. He said, what the hell are you trying to say? And I finally used some of these big words he was trying to teach me. And I said, well, I said, Dr. Paul told me to use them words. He said, hell with that boy. He said, you be shy walker. He said, nobody's going to know you if you start using them words. He said, you don't even know what you're talking about. I thought I was telling the truth. I said, but I thought I was close to it. He said, he told me where to use them, but I was putting them in the wrong place. And now it was, I was putting them after when I should have put them before. You know, getting the, getting the horse in the rear of the cart. Well, in many ways, they, they teach us to just be ourselves. And to realize that if God wanted something else or somebody else, He would have made it somebody else. So when you and I start looking at the jigsaw of the 12 steps and believe it is a jigsaw. Because it's a mixed up mess to us that first comes to the age. I just, like the big book says in chapter 5, my God, what an order. How can I do it? Oh, I jumped around. I was a person called supper for a long time. Oh, I didn't know nothing about turning my will and life over to God. I turned my drinking problem over to God, but nothing else. Because I was still picking up little things off my card table, things like that, dealing with folk and anything, because I just figured that the line of honesty didn't have to be too thin. And I robbed a guy on a train one time, and I sitting in the back in the little restroom, you know, and I got this guy's pocket it. And I said, boy, I'm going to listen to these people in there a little bit more. They don't even know what they're talking about. They told me not to worry about nothing, that God would take care of everything. He sent me this guy, all they had to do is do the legwork, get the money out of his pocket. They, they teach us to just be ourselves. And we realize that if God wanted something else or somebody else, he would have made it somebody else. So when you and I start looking at the jigsaw of the 12 steps and believe it, it is a jigsaw. Because it's a mixed up mess to us that first comes to the way. I say, like the big book says in chapter 5, my God, what a matter. How can I do it? Oh, I jumped around. I was a person called Supper for a long time. Oh, I didn't know nothing about turning my woman life over to God. I turned my drinking problem over to God, but nothing else. Because I was still picking up little things off my card table, things like that, being spoken in, because I just figured that the line of honesty didn't have to be too thin. And I robbed a guy a train one time, and I didn't in the back in the bathroom, and it really wet in there, and I got this guy's pocket it. And I said, boy, I'm going to listen to these people a little bit more. They didn't even know what they were talking about. They told me not to worry about nothing, but God would take care of everything. He said to this guy that all I had to do is do the legwork, get the money out of his pocket. I done the legwork, I got the pocket to clear, there's hundreds of dollars here to prove it. And for these people in their age, you know what they're talking about. But the legwork is in the wrong direction. 
So the thought comes to me that the Henry the Bacon always used to say, you've got to be honest and take an inventory. So I did take an inventory of that guy's pocket that's right in the air. I found it. And I found his $2,000 with Travis checks in there. And I got to thinking, now, gee, if I endured some Travis checks and didn't pass, and then I get caught, somehow I see all my money. So I didn't take the Travis checks. Then I looked at these $100 bills in there, and I thought then about that to be honest and take a minute. They didn't mean that I had to go in the way of possible, and now I had to go in the way of me. So I just reached in and took the money and stuck in my pocket. Sit down alongside this guy and dropped this pocketbook in his whole pocket. Now that was my line of honesty. $68 is all I took. So I thought I was being honest. Because I didn't take all his money. I was better than I used to be. But after 20 months in this program, I went to Father Paul in the engineering. I spent four hours there. And I found out that the line of honesty was a little bit different. And the union employee was so pleasant that the guy possible. And didn't think it was like that after sitting there. All I know is that these people in the told me, but I didn't, didn't tell them too much about me. Because I didn't trust these people in the I feel that if I told them a lot of things, if they could tell the police department, I'd be back in Jackson Billion. So I didn't dare tell them. I was still on parole. So I took over to Father Fowl, and I took it. And he didn't tell me that I had to go to the police department or do anything else. He told me to start getting out of it. And that meant all the way. Not when I was in a car game to pick up 90 heads off me or the guy next to me. Or the guy on my left takes the change of a $10 bill or something like that. Or the beginning program wants to take a quarter, I'll take a dollar and a quarter. He didn't tell me that. He just said, don't do it, too. And I found out that he told me the truth. Because I hadn't had no trouble. Oh, I've had trouble with my system. Because I think all of us have trouble with our business. I don't have a drinking problem today. I turn it over to God. But I still have a thinking and a living problem. Something I think that all of us have. And we walk alike. And the proof of that is that the story of the farmer that had this boy, and he figured that he was going to take this boy to the Hesitantly because he just couldn't seem to act right. And so he went into the doctor's office and the doctor put the boy up on the couch and he says, Now he says, When I answer this question, you answer the first thing that comes to your mind. So he says, Now he says, I says, He was in bed in his farmhouse, he says, and all of a sudden he says, He heard this cow out in the barn, flattening and causing up a big bug. You jumped out of bed and walked out there in your bare feet and you stepped in something soft and mushy. What was that to you? He said, why, boy, sit down. Right, son, that's right. He said, I'm sorry, he said. What is it that this cow has four of that your mother ain't had two of? Why, look. He said, that's right, son, that's right. And son, he said, what is it that you get ahead of this thing that your mother has no pay? He said, why, cock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. About that time, the old man started to close that chimney. He says, don't you hit that chimney? He says, hell, he says, I'm going to get up on a very much supposed to be. How is this thing? How many years? I think that that goes with all of us. That it boils down to how we're thinking now. And I don't think that there's anything that will ever take the place of time in this program. Because the more that we're around, the more that we learn and we realize how little we really need at this time. Because as time marches on, our minds become more and more open. And there's nothing that any of us can ever say that hasn't been said before. Because they tell us it's all repetition. It's all over and over again.
The book was written in 1939, and it's Peter and A.A. that helped write the book. And it's so easy. Because every time you pick up the big book, you find something that you missed before. I know the lot of times that we become ungrateful that word that I spoke about. And the proof of it is, I'm going to ask a few questions. You ask them to yourself. I would like to ask you how long since you set up with a nice right one. A real nice thinky one. A real nice one that is even older once in a while. A real nice one that will touch you all and try to push you around. That's how long have you had set up with a nice I would like to ask how many, how long since you read a big book? I hate my tell I have this question. You give it to me. 
and you give it to me with a free will. There's no sin to have. You won't again, like I said, put a price tag on it. You won't do it for any glory. You do it for a very selfish reason. Somebody done the same thing for you. And you found that person that did it for you the same brother. So you are a safe brother. I started asking after a few months in this program if I wanted to stay sober. He said, now that you've got sober, you are a safe sober. And I think that's been damn important. First, we've got to get sober. And then we have to stop and think, do we want to stay sober? And then we have to stop and realize that it's easier to stay sober than it is to get sober. Because we go through hell. All of and he told me if I wanted to stay sober, to do what I was asked in AA within reason, attend meetings, and do 12 step work. And I never had any trouble. And I found out through the years that he told me the truth. I also found out, found through the years, that not only did I get so bright and a little bit of peace of mind, that you give me trouble. After I was in AA a few years, about a year we got a hall. And I was trusted to be gentle in that hall. I was trusted with a key. I was trusted to make the coffee. They knew I wouldn't take it down and step down to the boys in the track. They knew that I wouldn't sell the furniture up there, at least they had faith that I wouldn't. And faith is sanity. And fear is insanity. You and only know that. He had it for a long time. And they had faith. And by God, I didn't do that. And then pretty soon, I think I was around there about three years. And it caused me to be sharing in a closed meeting one time. And then I was around there about six years. And I finally trusted to be sharing in an open meeting. See, I was like that mule, you know. I had to get hit in the head all the time. I was around there about eight years and I signed something with the money. I was supposed to be secretary and treasurer. And you know, when that money stuffed in, you sang your little fingers, they were all back. And then in the year, then I was signed something to be general service representative. And then they brought enough of me and trusted me enough to be committed. And then in the year of 1958 and 59, I was to be the servant. In New York office, I was delegated to Southwestern Mission. Oh, I wasn't like elected by a landslide vote. My name came out of the hat. And I always say, is it after God? But at least I was trusted to be a faithful and trusted servant of AA. I was trusted to do the bidding of the people in Southwestern Mission. And I found that the trust that you people give me is the greatest trust that can be bestowed upon a human being. I was trusted with your little ways, your little cares, yes, and the big happy life. But the other trust that I was given is the unmilitary trust. I was trusted to carry the message of alcohol to nothing. You simply don't. They're still out there on the street. How wonderful it was to be trusted by God today than yesterday. I wasn't trusted by me. Trust is a great thing, my friend. I will forever and eternally be grateful to the people in my age that have been so good to me and have been so kind to me. And I've been so understanding of me, and I've been so trusted, trustworthy of me, so that I can try and put back a little bit of what I got in this program. And the many things that if I was allowed to stand up here for two weeks, I could never tell you of all the things that have been given to me by you people. I know you know without a bit of doubt that there wasn't any man or woman 
that comes into this program that ever has to apologize for being me. So just as good as anybody that's been around for 25 years. Because this is one program that you can become new in one hell of a hole. One drink and you're brand new again. Never do I feel that I am any better than anybody else. But by the same token, I don't feel that they're any better than me. And I thank AA and the people that put the tradition in the program of Alcoholic Anonymous. Because tradition one says that our common welfare comes first. That our recovery depends upon our AA unity. We don't come here to fight with nobody. If I want to fight with people, I'll go back to the bar. I can get to fight there without even half time. Here, we depend upon unity. And unity is a defense. And I didn't come to AA to have somebody manage my life. To tell me how to manage my life. Or tell me what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. I came to AA to get sober. I came to AA because I had an alcoholic problem. But I found many other things besides sobriety in this program. And I found that I could turn my will and my life over to God, as I understand. I don't turn it over to you. Because if you're so good at managing somebody else's life, what in the hell are you doing here? You can't even manage your own. So I learned that in AA we don't come to manage somebody else's life, or we don't come to have somebody else manage our own life. We come to AA to help us to straighten out with our different problems. And then we find the many other gifts that are given to us. The spiritual way of living, which is a wonderful way. And you and I have learned all these things, and we've got it all for free. But yet, when the bastard is passed, we're like the guy that says to his sponsor, Hell, I ain't going to that AA meeting anymore. He says, You told me this thing was for free. Every time I go to that room, he's got my pants down and he's my nose. It isn't money. The hell of that area I ain't going in there. This old wise sponsor says this to me and that thing. If I thought like you, I probably wouldn't go either. He said, let me tell you a story. He says, my wife and I, he said, before we married, we're in a factory, both making good money. And all of a sudden I decided that if I marry that woman, and we're working, we can live on my wages and put hers in the bank and a joint bank account, that'd be pretty sweet. So we got married. Well, we wasn't married too long before my wife said this because she got pregnant. So we lost that And then it wasn't too long before that she had to go to the hospital and she had to have that baby. And then there was hospital for it. Then pretty soon it was sexual. And then pretty soon the kids got to draw all his other clothes and he was going to school. Then pretty soon we got to the point where we had to go to college. And I had to get another job, part time to help them in college. Then pretty soon we had to have a galoppy to drive around these days. These boys had more money, more money. They just keep costing me and costing me and costing me. He says, You know, he says, the second year of college, he says, My son died. He didn't cost me anything now. Yes? What do you know? Literally, we live. Without it, he died. You want to live a little, or do you want it to die? It's entirely up to you, and you alone, to make the decision. This is your program. Nobody can take you out of it. Nobody can take it away from you. Because the distance takes place to you. But the only requirement for a membership is a desire to stop you. A guy can be laying on the floor, blown drunk. And he can say that I'm a member of AA. And who are you and I to say that he isn't? Because who are you and I to be self playing John and say whether he or she has a desire to stop drinking or not? How do you know whether they have a desire to stop drinking or not? And I think if there's ever anything that makes the angels in heaven weep, it's one alcoholic. 
Thank you. 